Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Maybe that one little answer, that one little bit of advice, helped them have a longer career and avoid injury. We're working in, a, in an industry that it's uh, turbulent times. And if one thing we could do is to try to make it a little bit safer and have longer, better careers. How prepared are you to cover a story that could put your body or mental health into peril? This is not something you should just ask yourself whenever you go out on a big story. Safety and self-care need to be a part of your daily routine. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Many journalists mobilized last week to cover Hurricane Ida as it made landfall in Louisiana and continued inland through the southern and mid-Atlantic states. The hurricane season runs from June 1st to November 30th, so big storms can be big stories every year. Christopher Post is an award-winning TV news photojournalist with WFMZ in Allentown, Pennsylvania. A former firefighter and emergency medical technician, he's seen it all. He's here today to talk to us about covering hurricanes and other disasters. Chris, welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. How you doing? I'm doing okay. This is great. Well, first of all, you know, I did mention that you were an EMT and, and that you had been a firefighter before becoming a photojournalist. You know, tell me a little bit about your background and what led you to, into journalism. So journalism is actually a second career for me. I worked in public safety and fire and EMS for for over 20 years before getting involved in journalism. I worked here in the U.S. and I also worked internationally in uh, Antarctica with the U.S. Antarctic program, Epic Murdo Station. So I always appreciated quality journalism, but it was something that I discovered later in life that I really truly wanted to do. And I had freelanced for a while, you know, picking up a camera, working with the local newspaper and television stations. And it eventually got a little bit bigger from there and doing stuff for AP and AP television. And it sort of blossomed from there into a, a staff position at my local TV station. I've been in, in journalism for about nine years and three to three years full time at the TV station in my community. Okay. So, so you're proficient both in photojournalism and using a, a television camera. Yeah. Yep. Still in video. Still in video. So, you know, what are some of the big stories you've covered? I mean, I've covered a lot of different disasters. I've covered the last few inaugurations, you know, political campaign stuff, uh, Amtrak train derailment in Philadelphia, the Dana Moore prison break in upstate New York. I could just on and on and on. And the, the civil unrest in Baltimore around the death of Freddie Gray, tons and tons of different you know stories up and down the East Coast. Were you in D.C. on, on January 6th? The very next morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we were all told to stay at our desks that day. So, you know, what do you like about being a photojournalist? I think being able to meet all sorts of interesting people. Well, actually, let me back it up. I'm really just in this for the election night pizza. There you go. Yeah. No, I, I really, I love talking to people and I love the interaction and hearing different stories and talking to people about their experiences. I tell a lot of younger journalists and recent college graduates that, and, and it's very true, I learned how to ask questions in the back of an ambulance. That's where I honed my skills to, to interview somebody or to try to, you know, find out what happened. And I love being able to do that, to talk to people. Even tonight, I'm going to go out and I'm going to be covering flooding in my community here in, in Eastern Pennsylvania. 
I'm sure I'll meet people that I'll talk to that maybe their basements are flooded or their car got stranded in the water. I just, I love hearing stories and I love being able to tell stories of people that may not have had a chance to have their voice heard. I mean, your current job is obviously you're doing video, but you've also done, you know, covered events with a still camera, you know, just for the gearheads in our audience, you know, tell me what you bring with you every day at your, in your day job. Every day in my day job, you know, I, I have a station vehicle. It's a Subaru all-wheel drive car and it's loaded with gear. Uh, probably my, we're talking about, you know, storms and disasters and things like that. Probably one of the best pieces of non-camera gear that I have in my news car at all times is a, you know, pair of $15 rubber boots that I picked up at Tractor Supply. Get a lot of mileage out of those, uh, out of those boots and you know, I'll use them tonight, you know, covering the flooding in my community. I mean, one thing that I, I carry that I know a lot of photojournalists maybe don't, or a lot of news vehicles don't, is I, I have a first aid kit in my car. It sounds kind of crazy that, you know, we would think about that sort of thing, but my certifications are, st are still current. I find myself in positions where, you know, if somebody's in, in a life or death situation, I'm going to do what I need to do to save a life first, and then I'll get some amazing video afterwards. So, you know, I, I have a little bit of a uh, little bit of gear like that first aid kit boots, and then I have the assorted camera gear. I'm carrying a Canon video camera and, you know, sort of tripods, cables, that kind of stuff. When it comes to, you know, storm coverage, or maybe if I'm going to cover something like civil unrest, I'll augment my support gear with incident specific types of PPE and other support gear. When I was out covering something in DC once, I ran into a, uh, a photographer who had uh, also been in, in Baltimore to cover the uprising around Freddie Gray. And uh, he was telling me about some of the equipment he had. We were at the secure location. We had to drive from one end to the other. So he, he gave me a lift. And when I was sitting in his car, he had a helmet. And he, he explained that, yeah, I, had, I brought that with me when I went up to Baltimore. I mean, and I know you've spoken about safety in situations like this. How much of a thought do you put in for your personal safety when you, when you go out to cover events? It's constant. You know, the rules have changed in the last few years with with how journalists are, are looked at and the threats towards journalists. I'm not just talking about natural disaster type threats, but the threats towards journalists are, you know, they're different. They're different than they were a few years ago. And I always take into consideration safety. Even as I was getting ready today, you know, as soon as I'm done with this interview with you, I'm out the door to go to work. I put some fresh batteries in a flashlight and I tried to do things that would be proactive versus reactive to make sure that I'm going to be successful when I'm working later this evening and it's dark and it's pouring down rain. Safety is always a concern. And, you know, it used to really be international journalists that took, you know, safety and we got to go off to a, some sort of training program. But the reality is safety is very much domestic as it is international. And we should look at it that way. Survivability and resiliency is something that we can make a lot better through education and through training, helping journalists understand how to stay safe. And sometimes it's just little things, helping them understand situational awareness, helping them understand, um, you know, that uh, you really shouldn't be waiting around, you know, you know, barefoot or in flip flops or something like that in flood water because flood water contains all sorts of nasty bacteria from decomposing animals and, you know, dead things to raw sewage to uh, potentially fuel oil to all sorts of stuff. 
So sometimes it's just, it's, it's safety, but it's also some education that takes place. So safety is always a concern and it should always be a concern. And it is always, it is always on my mind. And I'm glad you brought up the topic of situational awareness. I just read like a police report around an AP video journalist who was confronted by protesters outside of the U.S. Capitol, not on January 6th, but in one of the demonstrations following the election. And it's really kind of chilling because the protesters were really up in his grill and he was doing what he could to, right. you know, take himself out of that situation. And they, they continued to pursue him. You know, has anybody ever confronted you or, or challenged you? Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time. And situational awareness is a skill. It's, it, it's not some spy, Jason Bourne, spy trickery. The idea of situational awareness, you know, kind of reminding yourself or trying to, to be more aware of the things that are happening around you, being more observant. So when you see something that seems out of place, you can make a decision about what you're going to do next. The idea is to be one step ahead of somebody who maybe wants to do you harm. And yeah, it happens. That situation has happened to me, you know, a lot of times, like I said before, I drive a, a vehicle with, with my station's name on it. It's wrapped all around the vehicle. And, you know, sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's not more so not. I could be sitting at the traffic light waiting to make a turn and somebody in the car next to me toots their horn and flips me the bird. It could be something benign like that, or it could be it's crazy at times. It could be, you know, I stop at a, a convenience store to get a to get a drink or something like that, and I'm walking back to the car, and somebody's yelling at me, accusing me of, you know, of being fake news. So yeah, so it, it does happen. I mean, we we just saw a few days ago, I believe it was the MSNBC crew covering the hurricane. I believe it was MSNBC where somebody, you know, drove their pickup truck up. They were in the middle of a live shot, drove the pickup truck up and sort of jogged up to their live live shot location and was confronting these people while they're on the air. And, you know, situational awareness is, is huge. The idea is to be proactive versus being reactive. You see something, you can maybe move away from it or try to get out of that, get out of that situation before it occurs. Yeah. And I could see you, you know, if you're wearing a, you know, some sort of identification and you certainly have, you have a camera that you got on your shoulder. So people know who you are and what you're there for. And the fact that you've got to keep your focus on your job, but at the same time, try to be aware of everything that's going on around you. And I'm glad you brought up the thing about the guy covering the, the hurricane. That was, uh, I don't know how I would have reacted in that. I thought he did a really smart thing. He, you know, he turned the camera away from the, the individual and continued on as best as he could. Anyway, the reason I um, we reached out to you is I was looking on Twitter the other day and you had done a whole list of tips for journalists in your Twitter feed for, you know, how to cover in a hurricane. I thought many of the, the points you brought up were really insightful because of the history that you had, but also I, I thought it was a really kind of a neat thing to do for your colleagues. What inspired you to do that? I think with my background of you know, 20 some years of emergency work, I had the best training and it kept me safe. It kept me alive because I knew what to do. I was well prepared to deal with some really awful situations. And I skated through a wonderful career with, without any, any harm happening to me. And I find myself now in a position where I'm starting to talk to journalists about what they can do to be safe. And 
it used to be senior level journalists that worked for big organizations when they were going to go off to war, then maybe they got some safety training. But reality is the threats domestically are just as severe. They're different, but they're just as severe as international stuff. And, you know, I think we find ourselves in this situation where it's almost a perfect storm of things going on in the industry. There's also a lot of a lot of freelancers that are out there, a lot of friends that, you know, that I know that are journalists that work, you know, contract gigs, freelance here, freelance there, different places. They may not have the full safety support from a, a larger organization. So that's kind of what drives me to be able to push that information out. There's a lot of people who have a lot of questions. It's always incredibly, it makes me feel good to be able to help them understand things. But it also, in a way, makes me a little sad about the industry because I wish that the industry would have taken safety concerns more seriously a lot sooner. I look at friends of ours, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, journalists that get burnt out. And I hear, you know, well, what, how did it get to this, to this point? Well, it's because I was dealing with this situation or that situation or this situation or the other situation. And I had never dealt with that before. And they were all really, really hard things. Well, the way that you can be resilient to that kind of stuff is to be prepared for it. And a lot of the situations that we deal with now as journalists, domestically in the US, there's elements of safety. There's elements of danger towards journalists working in the field. And that's kind of what drives me to be able to help people understand what they can do to be safe, what they can do to also be more resilient and ultimately have longer careers because they're prepared for it. It's not a surprise. Maybe I talk to them about it. Maybe I'm going to be in Denver at the RTDNA conference in a, in a couple of weeks. Maybe we're sitting at the bar and somebody asks me a question. You know, I give them an answer. Oh, great. Well, maybe that one little answer, that one little bit of advice helped them have a longer career and avoid injury. We're working in, a, in an industry that, you know, it's turbulent times. And if one thing we could do is to try to make it a little bit safer and have longer, better careers. For sure. You know, on our podcast, we've talked a lot over the last year or so about attacks on journalists, you know, both like online, but also in person. And we've also talked a lot about mental health support in newsrooms right. and how that is becoming more of a priority. But, you know, physical protection. I know in, in, in you know situations that I've been in where, you know, those conversations only came up in a situation like this where, you know, a hurricane is coming through and they say, oh, well, make sure you do this, make sure you do that, or you're going to go do this. And it's usually th that pops up when something big, you know, easily perceivable threat is maybe there, but there's no sort of ongoing support. And, you know, here's a protocol that you need to consider. Here's something you need to work into your daily preparation and, you know, awareness, you know, again, situational awareness about what's going on. I'd like to see more of that as we continue to have these conversations about mental health support. You're absolutely right. You know, I certainly saw my share of really horrific things working in public safety, but I also see the exact same things working in journalism. And oftentimes it's repeated over and over and over and over and over again. If I'm editing some packages, you know, I'm looking at the same video, I'm hearing the same comments, I'm seeing the same sort of things, or I'm talking to the, to the witnesses, and it's the same type of stuff, but the support systems, that you, as you had said, they're not there. When I worked in EMS, it was. We had a bad call, you know, kid got 
hit by a car and killed, there was a mechanism there for us to be able to talk about that sort of thing and to get some sort of help. And that help ultimately helped prolong my career. But in journalism, we're falling short on that. And I'll be the first to admit that, yeah, I've had a good at counseling for things that have happened to me on the job. And I still do. It's something that, you know, tuning in and, you know, regrounding yourself. Mental health for journalists is just as important as physical safety, if not more important. Because if we're not mentally ready to be able to do our job, we're not going to be able to tell the stories the best that we can. Yeah. And I mean, there are a lot of things that sort of go into this. You know, I can imagine because public safety, you know, people perceive that, oh, yeah, obviously firefighters, they put themselves into danger all the time. Yeah, we need to get them some sort of support because obviously if I was in that position, I would feel a certain way or I didn't I don't know how I would handle it. But, you know, part of the, the journalism mystique is this idea that, you know, we're out there being tough, doing all this stuff and it can be wearing and disheartening and you know destructive in many different ways. I'm glad to see more conversations around this idea of, of mental health support for journalism in our industry. People don't always think that we're necessarily putting ourselves in, in danger or that, you know, maybe this action that you take yelling at, at a reporter just because they happen to be out and you recognize them and you want to harass them for whatever reason, they're not recognizing you as a, as a person. You wouldn't treat somebody you knew and cared about or, or just sort of knew casually the same way. It's really, it's really fucked up system. If we, I we, so. we could do a whole yeah, other, yeah, yeah. you know, podcast on this and, and talk about it because you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it needs a lot of work. So let's, let's, let's get back on the, the hurricane tips that you gave on Twitter. What were some of the, the main points that you tried to stress? So on my website, and I think, did you see the video that I put yeah, together? Yeah. Okay. It was zero production value. It was all content. And after I started posting tips on Twitter and and I do, I share a lot of stuff on Twitter and sometimes it's like, okay, something's coming up in the next few days. I'll start pushing information out. And it's always been very, very good. And also I'll get a lot of messages back. Hey, I got a question about this, or I got a question about that. You know, what should I do in this case? So that was kind of what helped me drive to do the, okay, this is what I bring. And you know, your mileage may vary, but this is some of the types of equipment that I take with me. And that's sort of where that came from. And basically what I did is on my webpage, journalistsafety.com, I went through my list of gear of what I have broken down into different modular kits that I would bring or I could bring on storm coverage or for that matter, any type of news assignment. So that's sort of sort of where that all came from. And I just basically went through the list and I talked about why there's different items, you know, for why the, that item is included in my list and why it's useful. But one of the things that I have in my go box when I go to an away game and I have to maybe fly somewhere or, or it's an extended drive is I keep a socket set in my storm kit. What a lot of people say, socket set, what, what's this here for? You're going to like work on your car or something? I'm a huge fan of using parking garages, parking decks for storm coverage because they're poured concrete. They are super durable. And it allows me to drive my vehicle inside with all my gear inside. I'm not hoofing it upstairs. It allows me to get to an elevated position where hopefully I can see, you know, I have a good vantage point. So it's easy to get in, but sometimes when the power goes out, it's a little tricky to get that fiberglass arm up so I can get out of the parking garage. Uh, and the socket set is there so I can take the arm off the parking garage. It sounds kind of crazy, but 
you know, it's one of those things that over the years, I said, oh, wow, you know, I really could use a, I had a wrench in there before and after the first time I had to do that with like a Leatherman or something like that, it was a bit tricky. So I went and I bought a socket set now, that now resides inside my my box for, for deployment. Yeah, I need to take my car apart so I can get it into the building. <laughs> You're working your way down that that line. That's amazing. And, and it just shows to go, the more you get into it, the more things you learn. And, the, and you know, having those types of, of tips, things that wouldn't necessarily occur to people. Are there, do you have any other ones you could share? Well, I think one of the biggest ones is we're going to go into a situation that that we we're expecting to see devastation. You're expecting to see some sort of destruction, displace people in the case of a hurricane, you know, flooding, damage, all sorts of stuff. The last thing we want to do is to be a burden on the system that's already there, that's already stretched thin for the locals. So that's why I'm all about being self-sufficient and having a lot more support gear than I even have, you know, camera gear or gear to actually tell the story. One of the things that I think is critical that a lot of people don't quite get. And if you did it the first time, you'd realize real quick why is having a funnel to fuel a vehicle. Most new vehicles have a vapor collection system. So there's no gas cap. You go to the gas station, you put the, the nozzle of the fuel gun into the tank and you squeeze the handle and it fuels it up. Well, that nozzle pushes open some flapper valves that are inside this short fuel port. It's designed to collect vapors that would come out of the gas tank. So you need a funnel to be able to put it in through the hole. Somebody holds the funnel and then somebody uses like a gas can to dump and fuel the vehicle, which is pretty standard. A lot of news crews, you know, you're maybe you're going to take a, a two or three extra five gallon, you know, jerry cans of fuel. You cannot fuel a vehicle without that funnel. It's impossible. You'll splash it all down the side of your vehicle. You'll get yourself covered in fuel and you're going to waste a precious commodity. And if you're renting a vehicle, they all take those funnels out. They normally come with one, but if you're renting from any of the companies, those funnels are removed before they even get put out onto lot to be rentals. So you got to have a funnel. And I had a friend send me a, a text message with a picture of him and his funnel that he, he acquired. And he's like, yeah, he's like, we could never have done it without it. You can't fuel a vehicle from a gas can without having a funnel, a newer vehicle, one that doesn't have a gas cap. So that's an essential piece of equipment. You forget something like that, or you don't have something like that, you're dead in the water. Yeah. We've been sort of talking about getting into threatening situations, potentially sure. dangerous situations. Is there anything you do to, once it's done, once you've captured the video that you do, is there anything that you do to sort of reset yourself to sort of get yourself in a better mental space? Depending on what the situation is, I bounce back pretty quick. But I mean, if it's something like a long duration assignment, I was down in DC for the inauguration this past inauguration. And I think I walked like 18 miles or something like that on inauguration day, some ridiculous, you know, and, and wearing body armor. But after that, I was pretty tired. My feet hurt. I think that was one of the things that I, you know, like a day or two after that, then I'll go back to work. But it's taking appropriate time to do things that you enjoy that are not work related. And I think that's one of the things that journalists, I think the industry is really bad for encouraging us to to keep going and keep going and keep going. And, and I think if that's one thing that I could say to newsroom managers is that when your employees go and cover some sort of catastrophic story or something that's real high intensity and you know, they've been busting their butt for, you know, for 24 hours straight, be kind, give them a, a day or so to decompress and, you know, stop sending them emails, stop calling them, give them a day or two off 
and let them regroup. And, and when they're ready to get back into the swing of things, let them, because it, it can be, it can be very, very tiring, very stressful. And every one of us, and I don't care, you know, who it is, um, everybody and everybody who's listening to this podcast has something going on besides work. And we have to deal with those stressors as well. So while we're covering these high intensity stories, we're also thinking about things at our own home, in our own life. And we need to take that into consideration as well. Last year in 2020, with all of the sort of the increased coverage that we had to do at my job because of uh, COVID-19 and the demonstrations and the election, I think the smartest thing that our company did was they gave us unlimited comp time. And it works yeah. well, I think, in the psychology of a journalist, because the journalist is still going to keep coming back to their job. But if they know that they have the ability to, you know, yeah, maybe I really do need a couple of days off or maybe I need a week off. In the midst of that, if you're worrying about, well, I'm not going to be able to have enough time to take off around Christmas. So having that flexibility, it's, it's right. just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And asking for time yeah. off should not be a punishment. Yeah. Or that yeah. if you do it, that somehow you're letting somebody down. When actually what you're really right. doing is you're you're ultimately going to make yourself a better mentally, you know, mentally fit and better able to do your job. Is there any, any other advice you would give to somebody else who wanted to become a, a photojournalist? <laughs> advice to becoming a photojournalist. I, <laughs> I was never really, you know, having some, some photography courses. Yeah, that was, that was pretty much it but I learned it on the job and I sort of did it in a roundabout way that maybe not many people get into the industry this way. I think probably the best advice is, and for anybody, regardless of whatever profession it is, and certainly journalism, but, you know, be true to yourself and, you know, you're going to see, and you're going to potentially witness some, some things that are not fun and take care of yourself, take care of your coworkers those are, are bonds that you're going to have for a very long time. Take care of each other first. And then when you can do that, you're going to tell an awesome story because you're going to be ready to do it. You can graduate from college and get your first job and go off and, you know, work at a newspaper, work at a TV station, whatever, whatever, work in radio and tell some awesome stories and you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. But be true to yourself you know, be there for your coworkers. Hopefully they're there for you. Journalism is much, is in a lot of ways, much like it was when I worked in public safety. It's a big family. And regardless of what employer or what station or what paper you're working at, everybody knows everybody. It's a small community and we got to stick together. Amen to that. Chris, I know we talked about your, your Twitter account that people should uh, check out the stuff you've got there and your web. What's your website again? And what's your Twitter handle? So my Twitter and Instagram is at Chris, C-H-R-I-S, the letter M, and then post. And my website is journalistsafety.com. Yeah. And I encourage everyone to go there and check it out. Check out this video that you posted recently and sort of as part of the recommendations you were giving to covering Hurricane Ida. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. 
You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsaljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>